Hey guys, I have another fun interview for you today. I interview my friend from Mizzou, the University of Missouri. That's when I was a graduate student there, and he is an undergraduate researcher, Ben Christ. We talk in his interview about how he switched from research and how he felt like he had more of a conservation impact by changing his job. He now works as for a consulting agency um, called Impact by Design, and he works with facilitating meetings, bringing people together, which is oh so important in this field. So many people don't realize this, but wildlife biology, conservation biology, so much of it is about bringing different stakeholders together, having excellent communication skills, being able to work with people of very different backgrounds. So today we talk about all of those things, and he gives us some great advice for running meetings and how to make them fun, and especially in this digital Zoom era, how things are changing. So let's get into this a really wide-ranging discussion. Oh, and also we talk about inclusion, how we can make sure that voices that are not normally heard are heard. We need to be the ones who are making the change. So let's get into this great episode. Before we get started, I just wanted to talk about a new program that I am running and I need some founding members to help me co-create this project. It is for kids around ages of 8 to 12 and their parents. And the goal of this program is to get outside, get connected to nature, and get them learning about wildlife and nature by using real wildlife biology activities that we do as scientists so that they can learn about science, the process of science. It's so often in school, you're just you're just memorizing facts or just learning about animals, like what's this part called and what this animal does. But in this program, kids are really going to be learning what science is, and this will help them become more informed and more critical thinkers as, as citizens when they grow up. A big component of this program is to also get kids outside so we can get them off of their devices and interacting in nature which provides so many mental health, physical health benefits. I know that parents out there are struggling with what to do with their kids since the pandemic. Well, this program has got you covered. We're going to come up with really fun activities for kids to do. If you can't always go outside, that's okay. We're going to have virtual activities as well, virtual alternatives. We are going to interact as a group. You're going to interact with me as a scientist. I am just so excited for this program. So if you are interested, just head over to fancyscientist.com and you should see a tab for Kids Wildlife Program. You can sign up there and get some more information. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Okay. And welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Uh, hey, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. You have a job that, honestly, I don't know that much about at all. It's in the consulting field, and you are the director of facilitation and planning at a nonprofit called Impact by Design. 
Can you tell us about what you do? What is Impact by Design? Yeah, certainly. So yeah, you hit it. Impact by Design is a nonprofit consulting firm. And when people ask me what we do, I typically say that we, we help mission-driven organizations increase their impact for people, animals, and the environment. We're a small group of people that come from mostly scientific backgrounds, but also business backgrounds. And we're just, we're passionate about helping people work together and do their best thinking and really make the world a better place. So we have, we have a wide range of expertise and I specifically am mostly focused on the idea of facilitating meetings and creating a space for, for people to work together effectively in a really collaborative and participatory fashion. I love that. So like, like a lot of people think that if you want to help the environment or help animals that you have to go this research, research route, like everyone thinks you have to become a scientist. And one of the things that I try to teach my students is that they should really think broader and not everyone is meant to be a scientist. Like it's just in terms of our skills, like I actually, I don't have, I mean, I have it now because I trained to be a scientist, but I think that I'm better at some things that, that scientists require. So I think that's great that you're, you're doing something like facilitating, which isn't really done that much in science. That's really cool that you're doing that. Yeah. So how did, how did you get into this field? Yeah, so funny enough, my intention was to be a scientist and to be a researcher. And Stephanie, you say something at the beginning of your podcast that really kind of hit me in that science alone cannot save species. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's coming to that realization is sort of what set me on the trajectory today, but it was a result of doors closing and kind of deciding to venture off in a path that I really never foresaw myself taking. So you, Mm -hmm. we actually met originally at a stage when I was doing research at University of Missouri in an avian ecology lab. And, you know, at that, I was sort of at this, this point of my, my education where I wanted to be sort of that Jane Goodall-esque scientist of, (laughs) you know, getting away from people because people were the problem and just wanted to Mm -hmm. be with animals, birds specifically, and be off in some amazing place um, doing awesome research. And, I mean, and you know the group that I was working with, it's just an amazing group of people. And inevitably I had the opportunity to do a little bit of travel abroad. So I had sort of the science part of my brain that I think really developed from being in a family that valued science. Both of my parents are science educators. My sister ended up getting her PhD and kind of the micro scale, she's a microbiologist. And I've always kind of been like that, that big animal kind of guy, at least compared to microbes. Yeah. And Although so, <laughs> compared to a microbe though, right? Yeah, big yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So there, so that I had my science side of my brain that was very hyper-focused on, like I was saying, doing that research out in the field, but I also had this growing interest in language and specifically Spanish. And that was something that I was sort of always developing separate from that science side of my brain. And it was those opportunities to go abroad in Dr. Fobwork's lab that I think really started bringing those two things together. And so kind of zooming forward in my undergraduate education, I had the opportunity to spend a year in Chile. And that's where things really started to connect with me. I decided I knew without 
any doubt that I wanted to study Austro migration. That's what I was gonna do with my life. And after I graduated from Mizzou, all of my hopes were riding on the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And when that fell through, I didn't know what to do. And to make a long needed, story very- So you needed the funding, that funding to go through to graduate school. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, for, and for a lot of people who don't know, it's a really competitive fellowship. It's, it's a very yeah. prestigious and competitive fellowship. Yeah, so that, that was you know, clearly a difficult moment because I kind of threw all my eggs in that basket and didn't really have a backup plan. When that didn't happen, I decided to do something totally crazy, and that was to teach English abroad. And it was sort of that opportunity for me to step away from science and really focus on people. And I did that in Brazil and the city of Sao Paulo. And, you know, looking back on it, it's kind of difficult for me to say exactly where that mindset shifted, but I decided that I wanted to pursue my education, but focus more on people. And that's how I ended up going into the master's in sustainable development practice program at University of Florida. It was there that I just really came to value the, the role that people have in conservation specifically, in science. And it was also really my first taste of facilitation through a class that I took that I ended up co-teaching eventually of how powerful it is to be able to bring people together and listen to each other and try to make decisions together and really try to establish buy-in in these big decisions that are being made. It was awesome to be able to be, you know, with, with faculty and colleagues to be able to practice that skill. And even though after I graduated, I still didn't have this perspective of saying, I'm gonna be a consultant, I'm gonna be a professional facilitator. I sort of shifted into the realm of social sciences and it was still something that I was practicing, even if, even if it wasn't at the front of my mind. And three years of working at University of Florida as a social scientist, eventually this opportunity to work with IBD opened up and I jumped on it and it's been a pretty amazing experience. And again, certainly not a place where I envisioned myself being, but really happy mm -hmm. to be at that connection of, of people and folks doing the science and kind of bringing them together and helping them do their best thinking. So this is, so IBD is work located in Florida then? We're actually remote. We're remote we're, even before the pandemic? Before yeah, so yeah, so even with even with University of Florida, I was working remotely. So in that sense, the the past year and the 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 changes that I could have experienced with with careers, I was able to stay remote. Mm -hmm. And so that wasn't a really big change of going to a completely remote organization. Yeah. So we're scattered along right now, mostly the East Coast, but certainly, you know, just given the type of, you know, technology and communication that we have, it doesn't necessarily feel like a remote job because we're always communicating. Yeah. It's, it's a really great team of people. Now, I love what you said about people. And I realized that for my PhD, like I, I studied forest elephants and I was like, this is so cool. I'm studying an endangered species. Well, they're not technically declared an endangered species, but they they are species status and whatever. That's a whole IUCN conservation <laughs> issue, but they are endangered. And like here I was studying the social structure of this elephant, which was like super cool. And I loved it, but they were being coached like crazy. I mean, I didn't see it, but across 
Central Africa, they were. And it's like, well, what's the, mm -hmm. what's the point of doing science on the species if they might be wiped out in like, you know, a few decades? And then, yeah, like you, I realized it's really about the people or the social science side of things. Like if you're going to do research, at least with this species in this situation, that the research really needs to be focused on like, how can we stop ivory poaching, like reduce consumption or increase education, things like that. So yeah, that's, I've, I've turned a similar leaf as you. I also like working with people too. And it sounds like you do that too. Like you like meeting I... people internationally. Sorry, go ahead. No, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. no, sorry. <laughs> I was just saying that I, through some 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 meetings and interactions that I've had over the past week or so, I've actually been thinking a lot about the, the time that I was studying avian ecology. And I kind of came to this conclusion that maybe I wasn't such a good birder because I was more interested in the birders than I was the birds. I think the people and, and the way that they interact with each other and kind of what gets them excited and what gets them out early in the day to be able to see these awesome species it's not that I don't value the birds because of course, of course I do, but I think really yeah. coming to that conclusion that the behaviors of people, how they treat each other and what excites them is really important to understand, especially when we're thinking about conservation. And birders are a very unique group of people. They <laughs> are, yeah. Some people are like such, so, so birders have a life list usually of the different species they see. And some birders are just like so extreme that they'll, they'll travel to like these remote Alaskan islands just to see like, several bird species and get them off yep. their list. It's, yeah. yeah, they're they're very diehard, dedicated. So for those of you who, who don't know, this is, I guess this is how I would describe a consulting agency. They they specialize in, in some area of expertise and you go to them either as an individual or as a, as a corporation and ask them for help with something. So mm -hmm. there's consulting in like, like environmental consulting, like surveys, and there's consulting and statistics. You can be a lab that does consulting work where, where people mm -hmm. can send you their samples and then they give it back. So what, can you tell us like how the meeting facilitation works? Do organizations come to you? Do you reach out to them? How, do, how does that work? Yeah, I think fortunately, given our backgrounds as individuals, we're sort of at a stage where through our own, our our own connections and networks. IBD is still a new organization, but mm -hmm. we're well known among the like, big international NGOs and even kind of people that, that are leaving those organizations and starting their own companies that are environmental focused or animal welfare focused. They sort of know the IBD name. And so I would say like first thinking big picture about what we do, there's, there's obviously a need. There's something there's, there's some type of process or there's a phase that this organization is going through where being able to have that outside perspective or guidance is valuable. Mm -hmm. So we work with organizations through a wide variety of things. It can be meeting design and workshop design, but it could also be things a little bit more granular like strategic planning processes, which require meetings, of course, or mm -hmm. things related to behavior change. We have an awesome scientist on our team who's um, an expert in behavior change. And we, we work with them to understand their need and help them go through a process that can take many different forms to incorporate people and stakeholders into that process to make sure that the voices are being heard 
that there's buy-in in the process, and that's really going to result in something that's impactful, that's going to enact some type of change, or that's going to be sustainable through whatever issues they're working through as an organization. For me specifically, what really excites me is just thinking about how to make people feel comfortable when they're gathering together. I really love thinking about the space. And of course, now my mind is definitely shifted toward that virtual space. But how can we create this environment where people can be themselves, that they can express their, their interests and their positions in whatever issues we're discussing, and they feel like that they're part of that collaborative process. I think that that's really essential for organizations that are doing things like conservation or that are dealing with animal welfare because typically people that work in those spaces are really passionate. Mm -hmm. They have really strong feelings. And sometimes whenever you throw people into a room that have really strong feelings about things, it can be hard to get things done. Everyone wants to make sure that their voice is being heard. And it's our job as consultants to sort of allow people to take that responsibility of managing the meeting kind of off of their minds and really focus on how can we create that space to make sure that these people are working together as most effectively as possible. So usually when you're working with groups, I guess there's different ways you could do it. You could do work with like a single organization and maybe help them like run a project. Like, like we, so I work with Wildlife Insights, it's a camera trapping organization. Mm -hmm. And I think they had a consultancy work with them when they ran a meeting in, I want to say Peru, I think. Not Peru, sorry. My dog is at my sink. <laughs> uh, Columbia, that's where I was, Columbia. Okay. And, but they helped like facilitating the meeting between the, yeah, the different stakeholders, like the camera trappers and the park managers and the scientists and everything like that. But it was, I guess it was still under the context of wildlife insights and they were, and everyone was kind of on the same page. But then you also have situations where you're bringing different groups together. And like you said, they have opposing viewpoints. So what, what, like, what type of scenario would that be like where you have to get those different groups together? Yeah, so I can think back to an example where, you know, a lot of these you know, big international NGOs, they're part of these coalitions or alliances mm -hmm. around a specific topic. And a group that was going through an annual meeting, bringing a lot of these different projects together. In those instances, people are volunteering their times to be part of these wider alliances. There's really not, there's not a financial benefit for them as individuals to be spending time dedicated toward the specific project or the specific action. And so you have a group of, you know, 20 different organizations and tons of people representing each of those organizations. And for me, I think the challenging and really exciting thing about that as a facilitator is how can I bring them into that space and make it feel like it's worth their time when this is voluntary. And of course they're doing it because of passion, but making sure that the, the design of this workshop and this, this meeting that they were going through is going to result in something that's very tangible for them where they can go through this process and they realize, all right, I understand the role that I played and I can see where we ended up and where we're going. That's, that's the first example that came to mind, but it can also be on more of an institutional level where we're working with just one organization and we have people from either different projects or just with different levels of experience and even different power dynamics, 
where it's really about just making that space where people feel like they can be themselves and they can, they can be part of that process. So it, it can look so different from, from one context to the, ne to the next. But for me, it always comes down to this concept of objectives. Why are we meeting? What are you trying to get out of this experience? It's st start with that specifically and everything else flows. That's how the, the meeting takes shape and the structure and the different exercises that we do all really comes down to that question of why have a meeting in the first place? That's true. So many meetings are not needed. <laughs> yeah, there's no reason. It's probably an email. Just send an within, email. That's within, fine. Within the organization, the organizations. Can you give us some tips for facilitating? And, and like you said, making people feel comfortable in the beginning. How, mm -hmm. how can we do that if, we're, if we don't have a consulting group and we're in charge of running the meeting? I think the beauty about facilitation is it's something that anyone can do. You don't have to be a professional facilitator to be a facilitator. And really, I think kind of my goal on more of a, a personal professional level is to make as many people in the world appreciate the process of facilitation. And I think the most important thing to be able to do that is to practice the art of listening and observing. For me, I think that being able to understand what to look for in meetings whenever it comes to how people are interacting with each other, how are these groups deciding to work towards different types of objectives, you start kind of forming these, these questions that you ask yourself as a facilitator of, you know, what's working about this? What was it about that interaction that I just saw that caused that sense of discomfort in the room? And what could I have done differently? Or even better, I think even more importantly is, what makes me uncomfortable whenever it comes to working with groups? I think really being able to, to understand our individual strengths and maybe shortcomings as facilitators is really important because then it also allows us to see where do I need help? I think I do my best facilitation whenever I'm not by myself. I love co-facilitating with my colleagues or with people from different organizations because being able to have those dual perspectives, you can see where I have my strengths and they have their strengths. And it just really causes that process to flow better for everyone from the facilitation side and from the participant side. So start with listening and that's maybe the, maybe it's the birder in me. I had that practice of being able to <laughs> observe and be able to be quiet and just kind of see these interactions play out. But it's something that I think the, the best facilitators do to be able to work with a group and see what's happening here. What are the, what are the roles that I need to be able to step into to push this group forward? Does someone need to ask probing questions? Does someone need to sort of be that soothing voice to make sure that, that people aren't feeling so frustrated? The facilitator can wear many different hats throughout a process or throughout a meeting. And the only way that we'll be able to shift is if we can listen and observe those interactions that are happening between people. Yeah, I, this is so important for scientists because and I say that just because I'm a scientist and in year two, and um, I think a lot of my audience is scientists, but I think, well, we're never trained these things. And I think a lot of times we poo-poo them, but really all of our work is like a meeting. Like if you think about writing a scientific publication, we rarely write a publication all by ourselves. And oh, yeah. you're right. We should have 
meetings initially talking about the different roles of different peoples and listening and, and hearing each other. Yeah, I actually really started learning how important that was when I was part of this teacher program at the, the Museum of Natural Sciences here in North Carolina. And it was run by educators, education department, and they're really good at doing this. And I, you know, like a scientist, I'm like ready to like, I don't know, go in and just start the work. That's what I always do. I don't, I don't like take the time to like, to do that other stuff. And we just like sat down with each other and wrote down like our fears, our expectations, like what we were excited about, like just things like that. And and just getting the fears out for people was huge. Like that they could say like, you know, I'm worried I'm going to mess up your project because the teachers were working alongside us. And we could just diffuse those right away and be like, no, like, like you can't, like, it's, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. Don't worry about that. And just that puts the teachers like at ease immediately. Yeah. yeah. No, you saying that actually makes me think about the, the, the workshop that I gave that you attended in December about this idea of, drawing connections between people. And I think that that's something that people, you know, when they're organizing meetings, the emphasis is probably not as high as it should be. Because when we feel like that we're part of that team, we really have a clear understanding of sort of our role and how we're contributing. I think that we're just more effective. We hold each other accountable. We, we know when we need to ask for help and how we can go about doing that. And sort of what you're talking about of where people can voice their fears or their concerns. Those are just, there's such important exercises. And I would argue almost all of the processes that, that we see ourselves going through with clients kind of from a consultant perspective. And so I definitely agree with what you're saying of kind of bringing that to the level of, of science and everything from lab meetings to discussing the, the writing of a scientific paper. The better communication that happens and being able to create that feeling where people can do their best thinking, I think it just pays off. And investing in that skill to be able to make people feel more connected and like they're part of a team that they have a purpose, I think is just really, really valuable. Yeah. Have you read the book Scrum? Or have you heard of the Scrum process? Your name. So it's <laughs> uh, that it, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I will ask that you explain it and maybe it'll like ring a, maybe it'll ring a bell. I mean, it's, it's basically a book explaining about how to work as a team on single project and it's project oriented, but so I have two virtual assistants and one of the tips was to have a short meeting, like within your project group every day that lasts like top 15 minutes where you just report like what you did yesterday, what you're doing today and what's getting in the way. And mm. before I was just communicating with them like individually and it's got us like all on the same page. And I just feel like things are so much better since we, since we did that. And like I said, as scientists, we're, we're not taught how to lead teams. I was never taught that at least. Mm -hmm. So one thing I wanted to ask you, so you talked about people being at different levels. So you might have meetings where you, you have, you know, very senior level, even CEOs and other people who are maybe in administration or scientists and they, you know, there's, there's just different tiers and maybe there's some intimidation or there's a senior mm -hmm. scientist and a field assistant in a meeting. Do you, and then also with, with science and around the world, there's so much talk about inclusion with diversity. Yeah. So I know, I think there's, 
or I'm pretty sure there's research to support that like women tend to not speak up as much and like how how to encourage those voices that are usually not as represented so either like how can we amplify those voices or like what if somebody is dominating the meeting like how how can we work with how can how can we work that sorry <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to answer, answer that. I know I mean I think that in in really kind of what I think kind of what you're asking is sort of hitting on a couple of different things so when we're thinking about being in a meeting and inevitably there can be someone who is like speaking up all the time they can dominate the meetings and yeah. you know and that's that's not necessarily a a bad thing thing per se, because sometimes those people have really valuable things to share. Mm -hmm. But when that happens, and you know, for people that like me, typically tend to be more introverted in meetings, you kind of just kind of sit back. And if you have a really great idea, you're just not going to share it because that space is already being filled by a voice. From the facilitation perspective, there are a lot of different things that you can do. But one is to there just there are a lot of like creative ways that you can do for that. You can give that that person who's like a speaker who wants to just speak up and not stop talking, like give them a role. Like, have, like ask them to take notes or something like that. Like that's one like funny thing that you can do. And not funny, it's kind of a practical, but it kind of forces their mind towards something else. Not saying that they mm -hmm. can't participate, they certainly can. But maybe for more of a practical perspective, you can say, you know, we're gonna pose a question and I want everyone to think about it first. And as a facilitator, you really need to make sure that you enforce that silence. So you say very clearly, I want everyone to take the two, the next two minutes and just think to yourself. And, you know, some people that are listening to this may have heard an expression to think pair share. That's mm -hmm. something that we replicate pretty frequently, even in our online space, where we, give, we, we pose a question and we hardly ever jump into plenary discussion. We allow people to think about it first and kind of gather their thoughts and then have an opportunity to share on a small group level. Maybe it's with a partner, maybe it's in a breakout room on Zoom with just a few people, but you're sort of scaling up people's comfort to be able to think on an individual level, then a little bit of a bigger group, and then to be able to share with the larger group. You can also do something like a round robin where you pose a question, you have people think about it and just say, we're gonna go around the room and everyone's going to have an opportunity to speak. That's one way to think about power dynamics. Mm -hmm. you're, you're getting at something, I think in another aspect of your question that I think is really important when we're thinking about conservation because this, this idea of uh, diversity and inclusivity, I think is on the forefronts of a lot of people's minds. And from a conservation perspective, I think that's really important because conservation is typically happening in areas where the scientists aren't necessarily living. That's not mm -hmm. always the case, certainly, because I think that community conservation here in the United States is super important. But people that are on the ground doing the work or maybe that are in communities near where that work is happening, it's in, in developing countries, I think it's in developing countries. Yeah, have, exactly. In have, the lead, like the lead scientists, the Western, uh, either European or America. Yeah, it's something it's 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 something that that happens. We can see just with the organizations that we're working with that are these big international NGOs 
that's traditionally have been very Western led are thinking about how to go through these processes of you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or my favorite acronym, JEDI, the Justice, <laughs> Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, of how to not only kind of from an organizational perspective, think about diversity and equity, but also in the work that they're doing. And that means including voices of communities and people that are involved in the work, that are impacted by the work. And that's a, that's a big thing to consider and kind of drawing that connection back to facilitation in these meetings that we're having and in workshops that we're having, it's really important to have an idea of how people are able or are willing to participate. You know, we work with our, with our organizations to understand their objectives. Like I said, it always starts with objectives. Like what does success look like? What do you want to get out of this? And when we're thinking about like a water state, a wider stakeholder pool or a participant pool, we, we have to understand what are people's limitations and what are their opportunities to be part of this process. So a really critical step of our work in almost any case is doing some type of assessment before we gather people together, where we ask questions that try to get at the heart of what I'm talking about. What is going to make you want to be part of this process? What are things that are holding you back that could be everything from technology to other obligations or even interest? And I think just being able to take that step, which can seem very simple, is really powerful and should shape the entire facilitated process that we're working with our, our clients to, to design, to be able to create the space that welcomes diverse input, different thoughts, and for people to be able to have that hopefully equal say in the, in the process that is being carried out. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of people, I mean, even here in the US, like I said, the teachers were intimidated of, of us. And like, I don't consider myself intimidated at all because I like smile and I laugh all the time. But one of the teachers I was interviewing, he said that I really intimidated him. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that. And then, yeah, you're like, you're right. And you're, you also need to think about different cultures too, like, like how how they jump into a meeting like like in Kenya I remember when we were doing interviews for our social science research they would take like an hour because you can't just be like I'm gonna can I do an interview of you you have to like talk ask about their family ask about their farm like you can't just jump into it so understanding culture is also really important I love what you said about taking a pause too because I used to hate being called on the spot or just like you know like, or just thinking yeah. on the spot, I was really about it that. So I think that's a really great tip. And another one that I had in another group I was part of is everyone speaks first before you get to speak again. I thought that mm-hmm. was a, a great, yep. a great rule. So it's not that you can't speak again. It, it, you just have to let everyone else talk first. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that that's really great. And, and also like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my, my, best experiences as a facilitator have been when I'm almost doing no talking. Mm-hmm. My, I would say 80% of the work that I'm doing related to any type of facilitated process happens before people gather together in a meeting. It's doing that assessment. It's doing the planning and thinking about design and engagement and exercises. But once everyone is in the room together, whether it's in a physical space or whether it's online, I view myself as simply providing this kind of structure and framework for thinking 
that I'm adaptively managing based on what I'm seeing happening because I'm sitting back and I'm observing and listening to conversation and providing that space for people to be able to step up and push that process along on their own. It gives them that sense of ownership and belonging. And it's, it's really actually a pretty powerful experience from a facilitator's perspective to be able to step back and be like, well, I'm kind of not really needed here anymore, but I am going to be, able, I need to be able to keep an eye on things yeah. because there, you know, inevitably problems, and I'll kind of like say that with, with quotations, problems arise mm -hmm. that kind of require that facilitation perspective to swoop in and say, here's what I'm seeing, and then sort of suggest a different course of action. And, and hopefully that resonates with the group and we can move forward. So what is a, a day in the life of your job look like? And I know there's probably no single day that's the same. So I guess you can just talk about like the types of different, or the different things that you do on a day-to-day on a -day basis. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I talked about before I came to Impact by Design, I was working for University of Florida on a project as a social scientist. And so my day, like, I spent three years focused on one project with kind of one group of people. It was, of course, it was, it was, it was a very diverse project in terms of the different types of disciplines that were involved. So it was dynamic, but I shifted from that to now thinking about six different projects that really have nothing to do with each other at once that are all, you know, of course our, our clients are doing this amazing work and we want to make sure that the time that we're offering them is really valuable for them. A day in the life is, you know, nowadays it's a lot of computer time. It's a lot of screen yeah. <laughs> time as I'm sure that you can, you can understand. And I think a lot of people listening probably can too. I think it fluctuates between what I like to characterize as sort of deep thinking on mm -hmm. these projects, because we have, we have interactions where we're able to interact, where we're able to talk with the clients one-on-one. -on -one. Typically it's like a planning team or an individual point of contact where we're trying to understand the process and we're checking in on things. And then we kind of go back into our little consultant hole and just think, mm -hmm here's all of this information that I'm gathering and how are we going to make sense of this and move forward with it? Something that you said that I think that we probably practice also is this check-ins amongst ourselves. And I really value the opportunity to be able to hop on a Zoom call with a colleague and just talk about things to be able to bounce ideas off of each other and make sure that we feel like that we have the support on projects. We're never, we're, we're rarely working on a project on our, on our own. And when that rarely happens, we're always make ourselves available to just sit down and say, all right, tell me where you're at, you know, what questions do you have? And then we're able to do our work, check in with the client. And eventually we'll get to that point where we have those big meetings and Sometimes we have more than one big meeting for different clients in a single day. And those can be really exhilarating, but kind of draining days. But, you know, for me, for being, you know, being sort of an introvert, I don't, I mean, I don't really like that dichotomy of introvert and extrovert, but it takes a lot out of me whenever I yeah. have those big meetings that I'm facilitating. And so typically I always try to have a little bit of self-care time as well. So it's that deep thinking it's check-ins with the team. It's those opportunities to interact with the clients one-on-one. -on -one. And then it's game day and it's your, you we give it our all and making sure that we're also taking an opportunity to step back and just disconnect as much as we can to make sure that we're ready to go for the next day. Yeah, I consider myself an extroverted introvert. 
because yeah. I love I love doing stuff like this or like later I'm giving a talk to a girls in science group but really I can only do like one to two of those a day and then mm -hmm. like I, I need the rest to recharge like I, I yep. need or if I go to conferences like I need a lot of downtime when I get back like I just yeah I need to recharge so do you get to travel a lot with with this job under normal circumstances yeah so you know funny enough the I, I was originally going to join the team in in January of last year and the the job description was very travel heavy you know, mm -hmm. there's always going to be a virtual component to the type of work that we do. A lot right. of our, a lot of the organizations that we work with are based internationally or in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So that planning process is done at home, you know, the Zoom meetings, things like that. But ever since the the pandemic, you know, one, my hiring was delayed because as, a, as an organization, you just had to kind of step back and see where things were. And I feel really fortunate that I was still able to join. It was months later but that job description did look a little bit different in terms of what was written in the practice, because what we're doing is the same, but at least right now the travel isn't there. And that's, that's fine for me. I think it'll be really exciting whenever the, the yeah. travel component returns and inevitably it will. But we also are thinking it as an organization that this, this shift to virtual it presents, I think, some rare silver linings to these horrible situations that we're facing. Yeah, I mentioned in the workshop that you attended that I think that every time that we talk about this idea of being able to work remotely, there's also this concept of privilege that comes along with it because not everyone has their job. Not everyone has the capacity to work remotely. And very fortunately, we are able to do that. And we see though that this, this level of effectiveness that we and other organizations have been able to achieve with engaging people remotely really kind of breaks down some barriers whenever participation is, is involved. Being able to hop on a Zoom meeting to be able to attend an international conference probably has a little bit of a barrier, has a, has a lower barrier than hopping on a plane and traveling. And yeah. so there, there, there are trade-offs, certainly, but we think that moving forward, this, this virtual environment isn't going to disappear. I think that this, the, the, the virtual space, I think, is probably going to transform into something that's sort of hybrid of people meeting in person, but then there also still being this big contingency of people connecting online. And I think that that's really exciting. Yeah, that was actually my next question mm -hmm. is like, do you think now that we've been forced to to go virtually that that will actually reduce travel in the future? But I actually, I think you're right. I think it's going to be some sort of hybrid and it'll be really interesting with like the major conferences, like what, what they're going to do. I know some yeah. of them are doing a hybrid approach this year, but in the past, I know, I know one of the conservation conference got criticized because you know, it's all about conservation and the la their last conference was in Malaysia. So for us here in the U.S., you know, it's carbon emissions. So some people yeah. wanted to go virtually, but they didn't have that at that time. But so my, my last question is, what advice would you give to somebody who is interested in going this career, into this career or, or working for a nonprofit in general? Mm -hmm. It seems like you have a lot of experience with nonprofits. Yeah, so I, my, my mind immediately went back to this idea of people and that power of listening and observing and really being able to have empathy for people around you. 
I think going back to what I said before of some, the, what you say at the beginning of your podcast that science alone cannot save species really kind of represents my mindset of being involved in the scientific process or conservation or simply wanting to help animals in the environment, I think can have many faces. You don't have to be a researcher. You don't have to have a PhD. And I, I really think that there can even be very varying levels of, of education and training. I think it's really important for people to be able to find something that they're passionate about and develop skills that can help them turn that passion into action. And so for me, it was sort of that transformation of that power of observation that goes along with birding to then applying that towards people and seeing how people treat each other and what I can do to make those interactions better. Where people are working to have an impact on the planet, I think can also look very different. You can work in an academic setting, you, you know, from, from the research standpoint, from the teaching standpoint, but, you know, the nonprofit sector also has many different faces and kind of our, our positioning in the nonprofit world is certainly different to a certain extent than a lot of the clients that we work with who are also nonprofits. You know, we're, we're a very small team. It's very intimate and we're very client driven. And so one thing that I do notice though, is that in the nonprofit world, work-life balance can be a little challenging. I think yeah. more so, more so at least than what I experienced working in kind of an academic sense. Wow. It's worse than that. <laughs> well, in my particular experience in, in academia, talk to you know, thinking about my sister who, who went through her PhD yeah. and is now a university professor, she'd probably listen to that and be like, oh boy, I don't know if I agree. You know what I mean? But at least my experience personally, because I didn't, I didn't go through a PhD program. And I think in that specific position as a social scientist, I just so happened to be able to have a pretty good work-life balance. I think that there's another level of, of complications whenever we're thinking about people working remotely. And what we see also with the type of work that we're doing is when we're working in person, there's sort of this tangible sense of when things start and stop. You have this big event and you travel to the event and you like, either you're participating or you're facilitating and then it's done. But that doesn't necessarily work so well in the virtual space. And that's the space yeah. where we're operating and a lot of organizations are operating that it's Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom call. And what would be one meeting in person is broken up into four meetings. And that's just one client, you know, and, and I think that's something that a lot of organizations are facing because whether it's a client or whether it's a project or something that you're working on, it seems like in the virtual space, things just sort of start bleeding together and it's just it kind of becomes this big work monster that's really hard to walk away from. We're as a company, we're dedicating a lot of time to figure out how we can change that and how we can maintain work-life balance. But it's tough. And I think it's something that a lot of people are facing right now that have the privilege to continue working. Working online just feels different than working in person. And it's something that we're, we're really thinking about deeply as an organization. You just gave me an idea. I should do a podcast on work-life balance. Yeah. Yeah. And even, yeah. even as individuals, we struggle with that, that sense of like 
meeting, blending into meeting. I actually don't have tons of meetings, but I take breaks during the day. But if you work like, but then like sometimes I end up working like all day and like even if I take breaks, it feels like you're working all day. So what I've been trying to do is have like a definite stop time. I'm not the best at it, but so that I feel like I have my evenings to do something fun. Yeah, and, and you know, and what's what's really cool about being part of a small organization, and this is probably the case in a lot of different senses, is we can sort of approach our work the way that we want. You know, the way that I approach my work day could be very different than the way that my colleague approaches her work day. And there's something I think really special about that that is also sort of representative of this this creation of a space, you know, being a convener of a consultant is you want people to be able to approach things and processes in a way that feels comfortable for them to be able to participate in ways that feels comfortable for them. And that's kind of just the mindset that we operate with. We think about it internally as an organization and certainly when we're dealing with our clients of how can we make people feel really good working together? Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here. You've been really helpful to me and I think you'll be really helpful to a lot of our audience who, like you said, you don't have to be a researcher. You don't have to be a scientist. And actually I just wanted to add, when I was looking for at nonprofit jobs as a scientist, when I graduated my PhD, I was surprised like looking at the individual nonprofits at all of their career listings, how few were actually researched. Like, like quite yeah. often I would go to Maybe not the big, like WWF and WCS pretty much always had research positions, but a mm -hmm. lot of the nonprofits, like I would check regularly and like, it would be rare that they listed a research position. Yeah. A lot of it is in fundraising and like just administrative work, financial yeah. work. But yep. yeah, thank you so much for being here. Any, any last words you want to end off on? You know, I, 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 I think I think about the, the virtual space and I'm shocked that neither of us had a Zoom disaster. But I think when we're thinking about working together, whether it's online or in person, that things are going to go wrong. There are going to be complications and just go easy on yourself and go easy on each other. And if you find yourself in a meeting that you're either facilitating or helping run, if things go wonky or go awry, just ask yourself, why are we doing this in the first place? Why do we have this meeting and how can we still get toward that objective? I'd say that's my, my final piece of advice for people. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much. You've been very helpful. This is fun. I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Thanks again, Ben, so much for coming on. That was such a great conversation. And I just wanted to reiterate how important it is that we facilitate communication better between different stakeholders. Because let's be honest, wildlife biology, conservation biology, we are dominated by certain groups. It tends to be white. It tends to be male. And even though we've had a lot of women come into this field in recent years, when you really look at the upper level positions in academia, when you look at the professors, it still is very dominated by males. So we need to not only include more people and invite them to the conversation, but when they are at present at meetings, we need to make sure that we hear their voices as well. So you can find Impact by Design by their website impactbydesigninc.org. You can find, let me get Ben's up here, or Impact by Design on Twitter. So impact underscore by design. And they also have a 
Instagram following Impact by Design Inc. And then you can find Ben on Instagram at JBC Brazil with Brazil spelled with an S. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And let me know if you've tried these skills and or if you try them in the future and how did it go. Thanks, guys. Bye. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.